0: I wasn't planning to say this this morning, but I want to plug Blast uh, because I get to know a lot of kids. I eat lunch, well, actually dinner, I guess it is, and talk to them. And when you get something like this, it says, "In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust, Psalm 25, 1, they color for you. You can't put a price tag on that. And uh, I just encourage you, if you've never been on a Wednesday night to see Blast, what's really happening I would encourage you to do so. Today we begin a three-week sermon series entitled "Own the Vision," and that simply means what it says: owning the vision that God has given us for our community, Forestburg Baptist Church, Montague County, the state of Texas, the nation, our nation, the United States, and around the world. Now, a vision can be prophetic; it could be a revelation. Spiritual understanding. It's a word picture for where we are going. So let me ask you a question. What do you see in the future for Forestburg Baptist Church? And as you think on that, I like to tell you that according to Webster's dictionary, vision is the power of sight, the ability to see, an image created in the imagination, a supernatural Appearance. So, in other words, bear with me, close your eyes, and imagine Forestburg Baptist Church. Go ahead, don't fall asleep on me, though. When you look into the future and you think of Forestburg Baptist Church, no obstacles, no hindrances, what do you see? How are we using all the resources that God has given us? What is our goal? Where are we headed? And as the title of the message, Why Are We Here? You may open your eyes. And as we walk through this together, I want that to be on the forefront of your thinking. And as you think, what is the future for Forest Big Baptist Church? I want you also to pray, God, here am I, send me. Listen for his voice. Now, Tony Morgan, a pastor of Granger Community Church in southbound Indiana, said this about vision. Quote, Without a planned destination, no one knows where to go. In churches, that leads to people doing ministry without a purpose. Programs drive these churches because no one has determined where the church is going. A vision statement paints a picture of the ideal future of your ministry and focuses prayer, energy, and resources." End of quote. Now, I will say this. If you go back and look him up, along with some other material written about vision, you will come across the Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren. That's another message for another time. But I just want you to start thinking on this, if you haven't already. Now, when it comes to vision and talking about vision, many turn to, including myself, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. I'm going to read out of the New American Standard. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. Now I'm going to read out of two other translations, the New King James. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Now listen to the change, how they describe this in a home in Christian uh, standard bible without revelation people run wild that's kind of interesting that we use that. that's a good description actually but one who listens to instruction will be happy now if you look at proverbs twenty nine eighteen in context it's referring to divine communication from dreams revelation or prophecy and the hebrew word that is translated in Proverbs 29, 18, is also found in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. It's used to introduce the prophetic books of Isaiah and Obadiah. So therefore, the lack of vision is a lack of God's relatory word. Now the Hebrew word translated, cast off restraint or perishes, means to loosen, thus to expose or uncover. And this is used in Exodus chapter 32 verse 25, after the golden calf incident. You remember God, uh, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the law, the Ten Commandments, and he came down, and they're around this golden calf. He asked Aaron what happened, and Aaron said, I don't know, they threw all their gold in the river, popped this calf. That still amazes me that Aaron got away by saying that, but it doesn't mean. And we read in Exodus 32, verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were out of the control For Aaron let them get out of control to be a scorn or mockery among their enemies. So without the word of God, Proverbs 29 is telling us, people are loose to go their own way. But happy is he who keeps the law or listens to instruction. In Psalm uh, Psalm chapter 19, verse 8, it tells us, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening in the eyes. And later in Psalm 19, we'll talk about how sweet it is, like a honey from the honeycomb. But here's the point. When we fail to read God's Word and live it out in our lives, we become people without a vision. When we ignore God's Word, we begin to live without any restraint, To our own peril. Therefore, vision is from God and is built upon the foundation of His Word. And with all that being said, we're going to turn our attention to what is commonly called the Great Commission. So here's my point any vision that we're talking about has to come from God first and foremost. And then it's built upon His Word, it will never go contrary to His Word. That's what we're building our vision upon. Now with that, let's look at the Great Commission and look, walk through it in context, and then we'll make some applications as we go. Look at verse 16. The eleven disciples proceeded or traveled to Galilee. Now the disciples are back there. This is at least a week after the resurrection, but more than likely closer to the end of the 40-day period of Jesus making appearances after his resurrection. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, not to steal your thunder, brother, but this is great for apologetics because a lot of people saw Jesus after his death. Now, his death was very public. People knew about it. They knew about the three men who were crucified. They knew who Jesus was, what was he accused of doing. They knew he was buried because Caiaphas went to Pilate and put a guard there and sealed it. So here's the point I'm making. A lot of people saw the risen Christ. In fact, Paul writes to the, I believe it's in the, birth of the Corinthians that more than 500 people saw this. And that points that this event actually happened. Now, I believe it to be true because it's God's word but they're eyewitnesses to what happened. Now, Galilee is their home, but possibly it's because it's the Galilee of the Gentiles. You see that in chapter 4, verse 15. So in his life, and also in his resurrection, Jesus is anticipating the gospel to go beyond the bounds of Judaism. And you look back in verse 16, they went to uh, proceed to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated or told them to go. And this recalls the setting of the Sermon on the Mount and the place of revelation and communion throughout the book of Matthew, talking about the mountain. So what I'm doing now, I'm setting up the context in which we find the Great Commission. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, the eleven, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Now, the, uh, the, uh, the response of worship seems quite appropriate. But what do you do with that last conjunction there with that phrase, but some were doubtful? Well, that raises some questions. Is there a different group than those who worshiped? Was there a larger crowd that gathered than more than just the 11? And what kind of doubt did Matthew have in mind? Well, as we look at that word translated doubtful, It refers more to hesitation than to unbelief. I mean, think about this. They all ran scared when he was arrested and crucified. And Peter even himself denied him three times. Perhaps, let's cut off some slack. They were fearful of the way Jesus was going to respond to them. Come on, Peter, you told me never leave me, even to the death. What happened? I mean, I can understand them being fearful. Perhaps their Jewish principles or ethics are still questioning the correctness of full fledged worship of anyone but Yahweh. Maybe they experienced understandable confusion about the way to behave in the presence of a supernatural, manifested, exalted, holy being. Put yourself in their shoes. Now, there's no clear evidence that there are any more people than 11. So when you look at that sentence, they, when they saw them, means some of the eleven, and then the word some, but some were doubtful, means to the rest of the eleven. So what happens? Some disciples worshipped right away, and some were just a little hesitant. And I think we need to cut them some slack. Everything they've been through, this is not the way the Messiah was supposed to come back and set up the kingdom. Jesus did not do anything they had anticipated or been taught at this point. But they knew this for sure. They saw him crucified. They know he was dead. They know he was in that tomb, and now he's right before them. I mean, what would you do? Let me back up. God is here, present through his spirit, all right? What would you do if he physically manifested his presence right here and right now? What would be your response? I think first thing I'd be is fear. I'd probably run down off this platform, get underneath the pew, and I'd be scared. There's this attraction because he is our Savior and our Lord, but also a repel because he is holy, he is perfect, he is almighty. You have this attraction, but yet repelling at the same time. So when we read this, this context, and when he speaks to them, gives a great commission, we must remember the circumstances in which the 11 have come to see him. Now, I say 11, there was 12, but Judas, as you well know, had betrayed him with the kiss for 12 pieces of silver. Now, he's already committed suicide. And yes, I'll say this, if Judas would have, if Judas would have confessed and repented, I, I believe Jesus would have forgave him. So there they are and this reaction. And then Jesus, in the text, goes to them and draws near to them and says this in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. Now, Jesus can only make this claim only if he is fully God. I mean, the whole universe is being embraced by his authority that's been delegated to him. Now, he is some way distinct from the Father because this authority has been given to him. And there is a clear allusion to the heavenly son of man that we see back in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. But Jesus' ocultation as a result of his resurrection means that one day, as we read in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, for this reason also, and the previous verse talks about he dying, giving himself up as a ransom, for this reason also, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here's the point: every day, every someday, every person's going to take a knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have a choice to make in this life. Either we can humble ourselves and get, down on, and get down on our knees and say, Jesus, you are Lord. Or we can wait and live in our pride and say, I'm not going to do that, but one day you will. You will see him for who he really is. And great is the reward for people who humble themselves now and declare Jesus Christ as Lord. It's up to you what you going to do with that Jesus has the authority to issue to us our marching orders and he also has the ability to help us carry out these orders and these orders known as the great commission gives birth to and is the foundation of our vision of the vision that God has given me and really has given you because look what he says because that authority that's been given to him, look at verse 18 again. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We are to make disciples as we are going and when we reach our destination. In other words, it's not about going. I'm not going on a mission trip as I'm going to that destination I'm on mission as I walk among people to make disciples as I am going. Now, some people use this to really elevate for missions. We need people to go to all the nations. But it's also talking about making disciples right where we are. And in fact, if you look at the condition of our country right now, We have more missionaries coming to the United States than the United States is sending out across the world. We have become the mission field. And right here in Texas, there's a huge mission field. People from all over the world moving into Texas. In fact, I think it was about 10 years ago, I went to a uh, conference put on by the convention, the Evangelism Conference, and they said back then, if you could plan the church in Houston, this is the greater Houston area, I get very confused when I'm there because I can't tell when one city starts and one stops. But you say you can plant a church there, all right? And that church can average attendance of 1,000 people. So that attendance can go up and down, but it averages at least 1,000 people. And you can plant a church like that and be sustainable every single month of the year, and you would not put a dent in the population. That's how fast it is growing. And Forestburg, have you noticed People are moving this way. (laughs) They're coming our way. The mission field is coming to us. God has planned us. Think about this. The building is paid for. And he has brought people our way. With different gifts and different abilities to help us meet that need. To help build his kingdom. Going back to Acts chapter 1, it talks about this, a different account that Luke gives us. He tells us in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now listen, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the world. So put it in our, here in Forestburg, Monte County, the state of Texas, United States, and indeed the rest of the world. So, we are called to do missions where we live, where we work, where we play, where we visit, and everything in between. When you get rid of that mentality or that paradigm that says, well, I'm going on missions No, as soon as you walk out these doors, you're on the mission field. And in fact, I tell you right now, you're on the mission field. You can't take it for granted. Everybody sitting in church understands who Jesus is. When I preach a message, I mean, you look at the Old Testament specifically. You look at the Book of Exodus. Well, Exodus tells the story of, of G, uh, God leading His people out of slavery out of Egypt. Well, how did they get in Egypt? Well, that goes back to Joseph. Well, how did Joseph get messed on that? Well, go back to his brothers. What happened? I mean, how far back do you go to set up the, the the story? Is my point, and you can't take it for granted. Everybody knows the story. We have a lot of work to do. This. Requires evangelism that does not stop after one's profession of faith. That is not the end. That is nearly the beginning. More of that in a moment. Now, if you look back at this, the word nations and the Greek, I'll try to pronounce it properly, is ethnos. We get our Greek word, I mean, our English word ethics or ethnic from that. And it's translated Gentiles or peoples. Now, Gentiles is favored by people who see that God rejected the Jews because that word nations can re, uh, refer to anybody who's not Jewish. And they say, well, God has rejected the Jews because they reject the Messiah. However, when you look at the book of Matthew, he uses this word in chapter 24, 9, 24, 14, and twenty-five, thirty-two. And those contexts includes both Jews and Gentiles as recipients of evangelism and judgment. So it's nations. God has not turned his back on the Jewish people, but something has changed. They no longer can be saved by trusting in God or the Mosaic Covenant. To have fellowship with God, one must now come through Jesus. As Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. That's what's changed. I won't repeat this again because there's a lot of Jewish hatred going around. God has not turned his back on the Jewish people. In fact, I will tell you, even now in Israel, there's a lot of Messianic Jews who've come to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. And it, I really like talking to them because they tell you about all the feasts and all this, all the Jewish history. But God hasn't turned his back on anybody. And we can't sit back and pick and choose who we're going to talk to. It doesn't tell us that. Go out and tell everybody. Make disciples of everybody. We hear the words, all nations, we're tempted to think one of two things. Only called to make disciples abroad or only called to evangelize our friends and family. The truth is, we must have a hand in both. Now listen to me very carefully. It is the task. It is the job. It is the duty. It is the obligation of every believer to duplicate themselves wherever they may be. It's not the pastors. It's not the deacons. It's not the youth, it's not any of the leaders, it's not Roger. It's everybody's responsibility to make disciples, to duplicate themselves. It's all our responsibility. Well, how do we make disciples? Well, verse 19 tells us. Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now this baptism refers to what John and Jesus already participated in. It's a once and for all, decisive decision to put your faith in Christ. It's that moment in time when you confess and you repented of your sins, you're as Christ into your life. At that moment, now you are justified in the eyes of God because the blood of Jesus covers your sins. That's what it's talking about. Now, baptism, I point back here to the baptismal, in and by itself does not save you. Baptism is just an illustration telling us, first of all, it is, it is. You can be saved without being baptized, but baptism is important because it's a public proclamation of your faith. You're dying to yourself as you go into the watery grave, and now you're raised in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're a brand new creature, a new creation. It's an outward demonstration of what's already happened in your heart. Let's not forget, as we said in Bible school this morning, salvation is not a result of works. It's all by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Not only we should baptize them, what do we do? In the name of. That means declaring allegiance to or becoming associated with the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Notice that the name, that word is singular in use, but there is followed by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity, where there is both unity and plurality in the Godhead. I don't fully understand it. You know what my default is when I talk to people about it? If I could understand it, God could cease to be God. There are some things about God I just can't get because my mind is small and finite. He's is infinite in his wisdom and knowledge. I, put it to you this way. Try to tell a five-year-old how to do the vision or multiplication. They just can't get it. Same thing with God is trying to reveal himself to us. And sometimes it's as hard for our brain to comprehend. Even the, the concept of eternity. Because everything in our life at this point has a beginning, a middle, and has an end. But see, God transcends that. God always was and always will be. So when you're baptized, he always says in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This is the heart of disciple-making. Evangelism must be holistic. What I mean by that? If non-Christians are not hearing the gospel and being challenged to make a decision for Christ, then we are disobeying part of Jesus' command. The gospel has to be proclaimed. That's the reason we have an invitation after every time his word is proclaimed. I don't care if it's Dale preaching, me preaching, Roger preaching, Larry preaching. You give an invitation so people can respond to the gospel message. Likewise, if new converts or Christians are not faithfully and lovingly nurtured in the whole counsel of God, the whole entire Bible, then we're disobeying the other part of Jesus' commission. This is key implications for preaching as well. There must be a balance between evangelistic proclamation and a relevant exposition of both the Old and New Testament. In other words, the whole counsel of God has to be taught and preached. We can't just pick the things that we like. And let me tell you, Revelation has pushed me beyond belief. And we will finish. We've only got six more summers to go. And let me tell you, we're at the good part now talking about heaven and what it will be like. But it has to be the entire Bible. I mean, if I'm to be faithful to preach God's word, how can I stay in the New Testament all my life? I'll tell you this. There, there's parts of the Old Testament that I've looked at and I've worked through the Hebrew and i prayed. I did all my my prep, and I go looking at a commentary, you may be surprised how many passages have not been touched in the last two. I mean, no one's even made a comment about it. I'm like, really? We just pumped this up and no one wants to talk about it? Here's a good one. Do this for homework. Go find anything written. Now, there's one good series done by the Denton Bible Church. I forget the pastor's name. You an excellent series on this, but the Song of Solomon. You don't hear Song of Solomon being preached a lot. Why is that? Read the book for yourself, you might find out why. We are to to take the whole counsel of God, because the song of Solomon talks about, talks about sex and the confines of marriage, and God doesn't give you a gift without telling you how to use it properly. Let me tell you this, Why I told the youth one time. The whole idea of, of sex within marriage is kind of like a fire in a fireplace. You put the fire in the fireplace, it's warm, it's beautiful, it keeps you warm, and no damage is done. You take that fire out of the fireplace, what happens? Your house will burn down. People will get hurt. Same thing with sex. Sex within the confines of marriage, it's a beautiful thing. How man and woman can be so intimate with each other physically, spiritually, and emotionally. That's another sermon for another time. But my point being, God doesn't give us anything without telling us how to properly use it. This also has implications for ministries of the church. Each of our ministries should have a healthy balance of outreach and need reach. Every member is encouraged to expend their energies developing their strengths. Each one of us have a spiritual gift or gifts. It could be evangelism. It could be teaching, it could be praying, it could be mercy, it could be public proclamation, which is preaching. A lot of things could be done. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Well, I just so happen to have, now it's man-made, answer the questions as those no pass or fail, answer them truthfully, and they'll give you some insight about where your spiritual gifts may be. I have hard copies of it, but if you go to our About Us page, or excuse me, it's on the message page where all the sermons are, it's right there in the PDF. If you like a hard copy, I can give you one. Because, see, I'm sorry. We in America have made church so self-serving. You know, whereas people go to the church, they say, what's in it for me? What? programs you have for my children, what programs you have for my youth. How about Bible studies? You have an uh, older men's class. You have a younger woman's class. What do you have? Now, we should be sensitive to that. Don't misunderstand me. But at the same time, I'm going to pick on Larry. If Larry was a pastor here, and I'm growing in my faith, I'd be talking to Larry. Hey, Larry, I think these are my spiritual gifts. Where can I serve? What can I help? That's what we're supposed to be doing, right? We're not supposed to be take and take and take consumerism. We're supposed to be help build The kingdom. Jesus calls all Christians to be both witnesses and disciple makers. So before we look at any building programs, before we even talk about any of that other stuff, we have to start right here. Why are we here to make disciples? And yes, I get concerned about numbers just like everybody else, but if you take care of discipleship, numbers will take care of themselves. Because we all take on that responsibility of making disciples. You'll see it start to flourish. Now I know things are different out there than we were 20 years ago. But people are still hungry for the truth. And here's another thing. We need to pray about all this. God will make divine appointments for you. And look at verse 20, to go along with that. Jesus tells them, and lo, I'm with you always, literally all the days, even to the end of the age. He's not putting you on mission, say, hey, good luck. <laughs> you know, you only know He's with you through His Spirit, telling you what to say, guiding your steps, guiding to who you should see. Because let's be honest, if we are really desiring and seeking God, God, who is it you want me to go see today? Who is it you want me to talk to today? The person that he's going to lead you to, he's already working on their heart already. I've seen that happen in my own life. I'm glad you're talking about this because I've been praying about this. But prayer is so essential. I want this to to tell you about college prayer. I cannot tell you How many times we have prayed for stuff within that group and see God do amazing and powerful things. And we've only touched just a little bit of what God can do. I've heard vision explained this way Vision is stepping back and letting God do what He does best. Get out of His way, in other words. Let God do the work. (laughs) You know, it's kind of interesting at the end of Matthew's gospel, and you look at the beginning of His gospel. It's in by this Emmanuel, God with us. We have it at the beginning with his birth, and we have it at the end when he says, I'm always with you. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, is also quoted in Hebrews 13, 5. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. Don't be afraid when people call you names. Don't, don't, because the Lord your God is with you. For the, Lord, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And that last part, he will not fail you or forsake you, is quoted in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. God is always with us. He hasn't left us alone to carry this out. So what's our vision about? The first part I want to tell you, why are we here? To make disciples. Next week, we'll talk about how we're going to do that, how we're going to unpack that. So come back next week, and we'll unpack that a little more. But I want you to think about this and pray about this. Not only in this week, next week, I want you to be continually praying about making disciples. See, our vision begins with, and it's built upon, disciple-making. That is why we are here. Now, many people think they're not ready to make disciples. They make many excuses. I haven't been a Christian long enough, or I don't have my act together, or people will not listen to me. Consider the first 11 guys that heard this. They had no seminary, no college. When he went to the cross, they all ran scared, very uneducated, probably looked down upon by a lot of people, and he gave these orders to these men. Now consider what happened. They believed him, and they followed him, and they turned the world upside down for Christ. The full pack of what they did, we will never know. We know stories of different people, but can you imagine the countless lives that have been changed because these 11 disciples went out and did exactly what Jesus told them to do. You want to see Forest Bird radically changed? You want to see our county radically change. You want to see our country radically change. It begins right here. One person at a time, sharing the gospel and making disciples. You know, the greatest thing you can tell somebody is your own story what God has done for you in the past, what He's doing for you right now, and what He's promised to do in the future. As Roger alluded to, you know, he just, you know what, brother? We haven't lost her. We know where she's at. (laughs) And that's one of the greatest things about being a Christian. We know where they're at. And we know we're going to be there one day. People are hungry to hear it. But they just want to hear it. They want to see it. They want to see it lived out. So our vision, what is it, Pastor? It starts with making disciples. That is the foundation. Jesus has the authority to do it. He's told us, make disciples. And he is going to be with us every step of the way. Is it going to be easy? No. Why does he think, he says back in Deuteronomy, be strong, be strong and courageous. How can we be strong and courageous? For the Lord your God is with you. He will not leave you and he will never forsake you. What a great promise. What a great promise. What is God leading you to do in this moment? First of all, do you know Christ? Have you made a public confession in him? Have you followed in obedience for baptism, publicly proclaiming your faith in Christ that? Your life is no longer yours, but it belongs to him, and your raise and newness of life. Have you done that? Have you, have you joined a local body, this body? We'd love to have you here. Are you currently serving him actively? Have you discovered your spiritual gifts? But before you do any of that, have you sought his face and listened for his voice? Turn off the TV, don't watch football, turn off social media, turn off the radio, and sit quietly and say, God, speak to me. Like I told the kids, echo what Samuel said, I am your willing servant. Speak to me, here I am. And I'm telling you, he will speak to you. But I caution you, when you go to him with an open heart, and say, God I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, He will push you out of your comfort zone. I guarantee you that. But I've said a thousand times God doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for your promises that you're with us. And Father, we we come and we are your willing servants, and Father, it's our desire to be obedient to the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, and we know that begins right here at home. In our own homes, in our own families. With friends, and neighbors, and co-workers. Father, that and you've promise that you'll be with us every step of the way. Father, you will equip us of what we need. Time and time again, you've proven yourself to be faithful. You've always been with us, no matter what's going on. And even when we're faithless, Father, you are faithful. Father, keep your spirit moving among us. Continue to speak to us and continue to transform us into more in the image of your son who is the author and perfecter of the faith. And it's his name that we pray.